Welcome to the Bridgeway Church Podcast. My name is David Bowden, and every week I sit down with one or several members of our church staff and host a conversation about how Bridgeway is seeking to fulfill its mission as the Church of Jesus Christ here in our city. If you are a member of Bridgeway, we hope this helps you more deeply engage with what God is doing in our midst. And if you aren't a part of Bridgeway, we hope you feel welcome and that our discussions may lead to more Christ-glorifying ministry in your own context. Let's jump in. Well, welcome everyone to the Bridgeway Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We are finishing our series on how to read the Bible today. We've gone through a bunch of Old Testament genres like law and narrative, prophecy and wisdom. Uh, And then last week we talked about our first New Testament genre, the Gospels. And uh, it was a very interesting episode. If you missed it, we encourage you to go back and listen. And today we're going to be wrapping up with what makes up the rest of the New Testament with uh, a few exceptions, uh, especially that famous last book of the Bible. Um, But maybe we can talk about if that classifies as an epistle of a different form. Uh, But we're going to be talking about the New Testament epistles today. Um, So Sam, what in the world is an epistle? I don't use that word every day. I mean, I do, but most people... (laughs) Yeah. What what is that word? What does it mean? Well, um, there's a little bit of a dispute among scholars about whether there's a difference between what we call an epistle and a letter. Okay. Um, So many believe that epistles were very carefully crafted literary treatises that were designed for a broader audience. Mm -hmm. In other words, not just for one particular church and one particular occasion. Letters, on the other hand, were directed to a specific church in a specific city. Uh, Not that they didn't apply to the lives of people elsewhere, but in terms of their intent. So um, this is again a disputed point, but many scholars think that the uh, that Ephesians, mm-hmm. for example, is an epistle. Oh yeah, it's meant to be circulated. But Colossians is a letter. <laughs> okay. And yet, when you read them, they are very similar. Very similar. They have yeah. parts that overlap. Yeah. They yeah. they they call uh, Ephesians a circular letter, mm-hmm. or that and that kind of is what an epistle is. That Paul intended for that to not just be in Ephesus, but to go elsewhere, and and, and so. It's less occasioned by specific circumstances in Ephesus and more broadly uh, based. Um, of all of the New Testament, what we call, <clears throat> excuse me, letters or epistles, uh, the one that perhaps is uh, is most obviously an epistle is Romans. Mm-hmm. Now, Romans is still written for specific issues that were being addressed in Rome, very primarily so. the Jew-Gentile issue. Mm-hmm. But um, it is very clear when you read Romans that this is theological truth that transcends geography, culture, time, race, whatever else. These, it, you know, it, it, It's very uh, uh, broadly theological in its focus and in its application. So... Um, I don't know that it's necessary that people worry much about the difference between epistle and letter. Scholars can't really make up their minds on that point. Um, It's hard to find any of the so-called epistles that isn't occasional in nature. Right. And that that might be a good place for us to start, what we mean by that. Um, I'm, I'm just trying to think, David, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. I think that Aside, I think that every New Testament letter and epistle, maybe wrong, was written to address a particular 
occasion and a particular challenge in a particular church in a particular city. Mm. So just think with me for a minute. Yeah. Let's take Colossians. Yeah. Colossians, there's a lot of talk about philosophy and and um, you know the whatever the worship of angels means and mm-hmm. not being uh, there. There were certain elements that uh, that undermine the humanity of Christ that he was addressing. There, he talks a lot about the defeat of principalities and powers. Um, there are certain things that were happening in the city of Colossae at that time that Paul was specifically addressing. On the other hand, at the end of Colossians, he tells them to read the letter that he had written to Laodicea, mm-hmm. which is another question. We don't have that in the New Testament, uh, do we? Right. Where is the the epistle to the Laodiceans? Well, buried and rotted away somewhere. Yeah. But, and, uh, and we're Second Corinthians. We have Third Corinthians or something, don't oh, we? Oh, we have. Uh, <laughs> Paul wrote four letters yeah. to the Corinthians. <laughs> right. We only have two of them. Right. A lot of people are squirming in their seats right now. <laughs> what? Are you guys nuts? No. Paul, Paul explicitly mentions yep. the letters he wrote to them that we don't have. Yep. Uh, so, but anyway, but, the occasional nature of yeah, the epistles, right? Yeah, and it's important to remember that. So, um, you read Second uh, Thessalonians. Mm-hmm. What provoked it? Well, they were, you know, they operated under the delusion that the day of the Lord had come. Maybe they right. even missed the return of Christ. And Paul is writing to correct it. He's also writing to uh, bring correction to to those who were what he called busybodies who wouldn't work and were mm-hmm. mooching off the other believers. Um, you know. Uh, what are some other examples? Obviously, his his letters to Timothy, um, in a sense, they were written to a person rather than to a church. Although he knew that uh, he you know talks about the public reading of Scripture in First Timothy. Well, mm-hmm. Timothy was most likely in Ephesus. Um, so Philemon, very personal letter addressing yeah. a particular problem. Um, so all of the virtually all of the New Testament letters or epistles, however you want to call them. Were, were provoked, and I don't mean by that in a bad way, they mm-hmm. were elicited mm-hmm. by unique challenges, circumstances, false teaching. In fact, most of the New Testament letters were written to counter false teaching. Yep. Most people don't realize that. Right. Yeah, uh, I remember it's in uh, early early part of Romans when he's talking about like uh, people thinking that they were using the gospel as license to sin, and he mm-hmm. talks about as some people accuse us of teaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's often well. Wrong think, think of First Corinthians. We'll take both the first and second. Yeah, First Corinthians. Um, all of the unique challenges were going on in that church. Oh man, they had divided up into various groups, and they become cliques. Oh, I'm with Peter. No, I'm with Paul. I'm with Apollos. And then you had a situation where uh, Paul had to address a very unpleasant. Uh, uh, case where a man most likely was sleeping with a stepmother mm-hmm. and uh, he had to impose discipline from a distance. He, he was addressing issues where they were taking, uh, Christians were taking each other to court, suing one another. Uh, the getting whole, drunk on the Lord's Supper. Getting <laughs> drunk on the Lord's Supper. Uh, what about eating meat sacrificed uh, uh, to idols? He talks about in 1 Corinthians 8. What about um, the question of whether itinerant preachers should be supported by mm-hmm. Christians in chapter 9? Um, then you have the whole issue of spiritual gifts. You don't, evidently, they weren't having problems with spiritual gifts in Colossae mm. or Ephesus or Thessalonica, or maybe a little bit there in Thessalonica, in Philippi. People say, why didn't Paul talk about these gifts when he wrote to all these other people? Because they were doing it right. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite simply because it wasn't a problem there, mm. it was a problem in Corinth. Um, it's only in 1 Corinthians 15 that you see Paul go to such great lengths to defend the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus. Why? Mm-hmm. 
because there were some who were saying the resurrection was spiritual, not physical. So 2 Corinthians, why, why did Paul write that? Because there were false apostles in Corinth who were undermining his authority and leading people astray from the true gospel. Mm-hmm. Well, that wasn't the case in Philippi. Right. Um, so all these are just examples of what we call the occasional or circumstantial nature of what we call the the New Testament epistles or letters, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, and, and one thing that I heard early on in my Christian life that I found really helpful was, um, you know, you're kind of hearing one side of, the, of a telephone conversation. Yeah, you, you know, you you don't have the the responses to these e- to these emails, almost to these letters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you don't have what you don't have the document that first. Um, prompted it, you know, and it might have been a report from someone that Paul had sent out, a missionary, uh, to, to go and check up on a church, and then he came and gave an oral report, and then Paul writes them. Uh, you know, in Romans, he's planning a trip and wanting to go to Rome, uh, and then in, eventually into Spain, and so he's kind of paving a path for his, you know, we're hearing one side of the conversation, and, sure. and so um, I think there are these, there's a lot of the moments in the epistles that feel very applicable, and like you know exactly what's what, what he's talking about, exactly how to apply it. It, it. You know he's talking about systematic theology, or he's talking mm-hmm. about uh, salvation through faith in Christ. And we're like, yep, I get that. And then sometimes he talks about Doris or some random person or yeah. some some you know barely understandable situation, and we're like lost. Yeah, like Philippians four, Eutychus and Syntyche. Yes, tell those women to stop bickering and work together, and you know they're yeah. Um, and then I, it's interesting um, how you talk to Christians and you say, what's your favorite part of the Bible? Mm. And about 75% of them will say the Psalms. Mm-hmm. They did a survey once. And yeah. um, I think there are reasons for that. We talked about that before. I think it's just the raw emotion, the honesty, the vulnerability, the mm-hmm. joy, the sorrow, the, per- covered, the personal nature of covers it. Covers yep. the spectrum, the Definitely. human emotion and relationship to God. Um Others will say, oh, I love the Gospels. Mm-hmm. I, like, I like to read about the life of Jesus in his various accounts. Others will say, oh, no, I like the historical narratives of Israel because I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to story. It's interesting that, that the epistles have fallen on hard times in our day. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think there, I think there are sociological factors that have led to that. Like we, uh, with our highly uh, technological society, we're image driven and we want pictures, we want stories, mm-hmm. we want action. And you turn to the epistles and it's it it's it's line upon line um, biblical teaching, doctrinal yeah. theological assertions, conclusions drawn from it. I mean, you can't read the epistles, for example, without uh, highlighting the word therefore. Yes. Um, it's like and you you hear me say this all the time. We when you see the word therefore, ask what is it therefore? Right. And it's because, oh, he's now drawing a very clear logical conclusion based upon what he's just said. You don't find that in poetry. Right. You don't find that in historical narrative as much. You mm-hmm. certainly don't find it in apocalyptic uh, literature. Um, it's hard to find it in, in, in uh, the wisdom literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, uh, therefore, doesn't work in the book of Proverbs. No. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, in Paul... He, he employs these logical arguments from the greater to the lesser. Hmm. You know, if God did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not then give us all things? And you stop and say, wait a minute. He's, he's, he's using a, an airtight logical argument here. Or 
you know, if Christ died for us while we were his enemies, how much more will we be saved now that we are his friends? Yeah. So there's all these logical connections. Mm-hmm. These uh, the, the the epistles are kind of building blocks as he, uh, you know, you look at Romans, how he uh, opens up the first three chapters, basically just saying, you're all really screwed up. Yeah. <laughs> Not just Gentile, but Jews as well. We're all lost. We're all depraved. And, you know, then he draws that conclusion in chapter three. Now that we have concluded that all are under sin, how do we get saved? Mm-hmm. And it's by justification uh, through faith in Jesus. So, yeah, when you and so that's why I think um, the, new, the the epistles aren't as well liked. Now, I have to admit, maybe it's my personality. I love the epistles more than any part of Scripture. Mm-hmm. I really do. I love the clear, um, logical building block argumentation uh, and the development that you can clearly see. I love, for example, you know, you read the first three chapters of Ephesians. Mm. And uh, we happen, by the way, to believe that Paul wrote Ephesians. At least I do, anyway. <laughs> yes, I'm, big, I'm, I'll, I'll be. I'll, I'm on that team. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, he he lays out in the first three chapters these incredible theological truths. I mean, chapter one and two are just beautiful, mm-hmm. and three as well. And then chapter four opens. Therefore, walk worthy. <laughs> You think, wow, okay, now I understand. Why am I supposed to live in unity? Why am I supposed to love my brothers and sisters? Um, and, and it's all the same thing in Romans, first 11 chapters. Just massive, deep theological mm-hmm. truths. Chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, present your bodies to the Lord as, a, as your spiritual sacrifice. Do not be conformed to this world. Mm-hmm. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So not all the epistles are as logically... Uh, constructed as Paul's are, uh, but most of them are. Uh, you can certainly see it in in the Johannine epistles, mm-hmm. first, second, first John in particular. First Peter is very clear. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, I don't know that they're, they're almost all are. It's just mm-hmm. hard to find an exception. And I love that. I, like, yeah. I just love the clear, I hate to say it this way, this clear linear development of an argument that leads to an indisputable conclusion i'm just (laughs) i'm just oriented that way definitely i get that um and so i'm I'm trying to think when we think about uh, coming to the epistles and reading them um what should our what should our our disposition be when we come to an epistle like i i think when i come to a psalm i'm like ready to pray yeah you know when i when i go to um the torah i'm i'm ready to read and meditate on the works of god when i come to the epistles uh, am I am I coming to be taught? Well, as a student, uh, let's let's just pick on Ephesians. When I read chapter one, yeah, I come to just stand there with my mouth open. Definitely, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we might be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us unto adoption as sons, according to the purpose of His grace and to His glorious praise. And you're just going, wow. Mm. And you just go all the way through to the end of chapter one, um, and then chapter two, he um, he talks about the, the the nature of saving grace in those first nine verses, mm-hmm. ten verses, and then all of a sudden he he starts addressing issues of relationship between Jew and Gentile, and that changes your mood. That, that yep. And then you come to chapter three, and you have what I think is the most beautiful prayer in the New Testament, maybe outside of the one of Jesus in John seventeen is. Ephesians three fourteen to twenty one, and you think, you know, 
so again, you know, you ask how, sh- what mood, what expectation should I bring to the epistles? I think you have to be open to everything. Yeah. Um, Cause then you, it's interesting. I mean, think of Ephesians. You, um, you, you read this incredible prayer of intimacy with Jesus, experiencing his love. And then you move into chapter five and he talks about husbands and wives and how they relate. <laughs> right. And then right out of that, he, moves into spiritual warfare. Hey, <laughs> right. you're fighting demons, not your spouse, you know? And, yeah. and Paul's all over the, all over the place. Yeah. By the way, I'm just going to throw in this a little parenthetical here. Okay. okay? I'm going to ride my hobby horse. All right. Hop on. People ask me all the time, why do I preach verse by verse, line upon line? Mm-hmm. And Ephesians is a perfect illustration of that. They say, well, why don't you do a, a topical series on marriage? And why don't you do a topical series on spiritual warfare? Or why don't you do a topical series on prayer or a topical series on the Christian life. And I said, look, everything you just asked me to preach on is in Ephesians. Just right. be patient. <laughs> just <laughs> just wait. I'll I'll get to it. You, you, why don't you do a topical series on the on the nature of God's sovereignty? Well, right there in chapter one, there it is. Uh, oh, what, do one on the, well, there it is in Gospels in chapter two. Well, what about, you know, race relations? Well, it's right there in chapter two as well, Jew-Gentile. Mm-hmm. And, the reason I do line up online, verse by verse preaching is number one, because it prevents me from preaching my own pet little interest and yep. hobby horse preaching, mm-hmm. um, which only serves me, doesn't serve the people. Um, and because secondly, because eventually if you're patient and faithful, you'll cover every topic. Yeah. You'll, <clears throat> you'll eventually get to almost everything that anybody could ever want to know about uh, just by being patient. I mean, you do that in First Corinthians. God, the wide variety of issues mm. Paul addresses, and um, I just I would rather trust the Holy Spirit who formed these uh, and the the structure of these letters through the biblical author than I would my own sense for what I think people want to hear or, or need to hear. I think the Spirit of God gave us what we need to hear, and I want to honor that process, that structure. Um, so that's, I'll get off my hobby horse now. No, it's great. I love that. Um, and I agree with it. Uh, okay. You ready for the hard question? Uh Oh, this is, this is the hard question. Uh, we kind of, we mentioned it a little bit, but it felt like a little easier in, in the gospels episode when we talked about the fact that there were some things that Jesus said and did that were, that were still kind of operating inside of the old covenant. And, uh, and we need to be able to identify those things and, and read them in their own light. Um, but we also talked about the extremes to which you can take that, and it would be damaging. In the epistles, uh, especially when it comes to more socially controversial issues, mm-hmm. um, the, the question is often brought up, at what point does uh, the situation of the original audience, um, I guess, nullify a command or an exhortation or... Or limit it to the or first Or limit century. it to the first century. Um, you know, you can obviously guess the, the ones I have in my head, especially yeah. with First Corinthians that we've just talked yeah. about. Um, so, you know, talk to me about that. Yeah, it's, um, let's just take some obvious examples. Um, let me say up front, I personally believe that there are very few instances of commands that are given that are so uniquely tied to the culture and context of the first century that they don't have application to us. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they have application. It's just the way in which it's lived out is different. So for example, greet one another with a holy kiss. Sure. Um, 
Now, some cultures do they still do that? Mm-hmm. You know, in the in the Middle East, but we don't. At least, mostly in you know in in middle class America. But what do we do? We are hospitable. We're loving. We shake hands. We give a hug or whatever. Um, or you take the example of Jesus. Now, this isn't an epistle. It's in John, but. Jesus uh, washing the feet of his disciples right. in John 13. Why did that have significance? Because they didn't have concrete sidewalks and mm-hmm. asphalt highways or socks. They wore open-toed sandals, and you, they came in after walking outside, and their feet were filthy. Mm-hmm. And it was such a humiliating thing to have to wash the grime out from them between somebody's toes. Right. I'm sorry I'm being graphic, but that's what it was. Yep. That's why only slaves did that, which is so shocking when Jesus— got on his hands and knees, and he did it. Right, which makes it a less impactful event when we try to replicate that here today. Sure. We're like, oh, I'm washing someone's feet and being very humble and a certain... Like, no, think about the things that actually no one wants to do, cleaning toilets, or, yeah. you know, like, that would be a better equivalent. So when we were in Wheaton, we were part of an Anglican church, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it was on Monday, Thursday that we did the foot washing. Was it that, or was it... Ash- yeah, it was a Monday, Thursday. Yeah. Well, I made very clear, uh, careful preparations to use foot powder and put on a clean pair of socks <laughs> because I didn't want somebody pulling my shoe and sock off and being, you know, going, Ugh. Right. <laughs> uh, it just, so life today makes the application of that, of that action altogether different. Mm-hmm. Um, there are the, the questions of, you're probably thinking maybe about the issue of uh, male, female leadership in the local church. Mm-hmm. Um and, and certainly that would be one. Or the, the other one would be maybe even the uh, issue of homosexuality. Yep. Or even head coverings. Head something coverings. less. Yeah. 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 Um, so each of those cases needs to be examined on its own, mm-hmm. in its own context, with as much understanding of the cultural background as possible. Um, I am in d- dialogue with a, a particular local church even now where they are... Um, likely moving from a complementarian understanding to an egalitarian and therefore may very soon be installing women as elders. Mm -hmm. And their fundamental argument, it's just kind of a blanket statement, is all Paul's references to the submission of wives to husbands and only men in in leadership were cultural. Mm -hmm. And it was because the women then were uneducated um, and this was a patriarchal culture uh, we have moved beyond that. Therefore, those those exhortations and commands no longer apply. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the big challenge yep. that we all face. Right. And in some in some particular circumstances, um, there may be some validity there. You know, scholars draw a distinction between what we call um, uh, the principle and the practice. Sometimes there are practices like foot washing. Sure that still embody a certain principle. And what is the principle? That we should humbly serve one another. Now, how we give expression to that may differ. Mm-hmm. The, the same thing with the head covering, assuming that actually they were wearing some sort of veil. Well, that had real meaning in first century Corinth that it doesn't have today. Um, it was a sign of a wife's submission to her husband. To have your head uncovered and, and flowing long and disheveled was typically an indication that either you were an adulteress or a prostitute. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that isn't the case today at all. Right. Um, so how does a woman give expression today to her relationship with her husband? Uh, if we want to use the word submission, we can. Uh, so those are the tough questions we have to 
have to ask. And, and I think one of the most important principles to keep in mind is you need to look at the text and ask a question. Does the biblical author give a reason for his command? Mm-hmm. In other words, does he ground it in culture? Does he ground it in circumstances that are unique to the first century? Or does he appeal to some broader theological truth that transcends culture? Right. So, again, just to take the, the tough one, um, you know, the First Timothy 2 passage, it, I admit it is a challenging text. It's probably the most disputed text in New Testament scholarship today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I, you know, I have good friends who differ with me in how they interpret it, but I hear things like, well, the reason why Paul said I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man is because the women were uneducated. Well, most women were, but not all, and especially in Ephesus, we know that uh, Priscilla was quite educated. Phoebe was educated. Um, why then didn't Paul just say that? Mm-hmm. I, why didn't he say, why did he prohibit all women from teaching and exercising authority? Why didn't he just say, I do not permit uneducated women from teaching and exercising authority? Um, or, uh, and then furthermore, if their lack of education disqualified them from teaching, why then in Titus chapter 2 does he command women to teach other women? Right. Uh, th- that doesn't really work. Yeah, or why does he never make um, education a mark of, or a, like a requirement for eldership or being a pastor? Right. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there are other arguments. They say, uh, well, uh, the reason for Paul's command is because of the Artemis cult in Ephesus and women who were, um, uh, you know, assuming that, uh, they now um, had a superiority over men, or it was women who were um, threatening men, even bullying them. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that he was just trying to squelch a, a, like a riot. Yeah, yeah. And and I say, you know, I want to listen to those arguments. Definitely, I want to I want to explore the ancient world to see what's. But first and foremost, I want to ask, what reason did Paul give? Yeah. And Paul's reason for his instruction is grounded in the creation narrative and that Adam was created first and then Eve and the scenario surrounding uh, the temptation by Satan. Um, he, he doesn't... So I think that's what we have to ask, first of all. Yeah, and, and I think the big trouble I've gotten into or you know that I've seen people get into when they, when they start having these conversations is you look at what was the grounding for this seemingly cultural claim that we, or that a claim that we want to make cultural because it doesn't feel, feel like it fits our culture anymore. I think that's really where it, you know, we feel like something's cultural is if it doesn't fit our culture. Um, And this one definitely doesn't fit our culture. And the problem is when we go, well, he grounded it in the creation account. And then the retort I'll hear is, well, the reason he grounded um, his misogyny in the creation account was because he read his misogyny into the creation account. And then you start, Saying okay, so now theolo- all the theology, not only the cultural outworkings of that theology, but now the theology itself is becoming um, impaired by perception, culture, biases, sin, yeah. and that, and now then it just it infests the rest of the Word of God with, you know, I don't know if that's a slippery slope analogy or you know fallacy or not, but it feels legitimate. Yeah, here's another example um, in First Corinthians 11. Paul says, "But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ." The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So what is Paul, where where does Paul get this notion of headship? Well, he says, I want to look at the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, 
And that, is, he seems to be saying, is the grounds on which I see the relationship between a husband and a wife as such. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, uh, that typically comes up, and I know this is a much, much bigger um, uh, discussion, maybe we can do it at some other time, is what is called trajectory hermeneutics. Now, people don't be put off by that. I'm going to ex- explain what it is. The argument is, is that we see in, in the Bible from Genesis through to Revelation, what we call progressive revelation, the gradual expansion and unfolding of God's will and his purposes. Um, and therefore, we, we need to realize that, that all of biblical revelation is on a trajectory mm-hmm. of moving from the primitive and the, and the ancient to the more uh, enlightened and liberating. So the argument is that uh, when you read in the Old Testament uh, some of the laws regarding uh, women and what they could or couldn't do or their status in the society of Israel, and then you look at how Jesus treated women and you look at Paul saying there's now neither male nor female, we're all one in Christ, they say, don't you see a trajectory that the next step is there is no gender distinction at all. There's right. equality in function and, and not just in nature. Weren't we meant to pick up this baton like a relay race exactly. and run our last leg? Exactly. Yes. And so um, the uh, another good example would be slavery. Yes. Um, and, you know, you see certain expressions of, of ancient slavery in the Old Testament that seem to be tolerated and permitted. Very different from modern American slavery. Oh, yeah, we we're not talking but, about yes. race-based slavery. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you come into Paul, and uh, you have him giving instructions to the relationship between slave and master, which, again, mm-hmm. was not race-based. It was not based on different ethnicities. It was almost always economic in mm-hmm. nature. Um, and yet he also, in the letter to Philemon and in other of his writings, sows the seed that we believe ultimately led to the dissolution of slavery. Right. And so the argument is, isn't that what Paul's doing with this whole issue of women mm-hmm. and the question of submission and headship? Uh, the problem with the trajectory hermeneutic is it has to stop with the New Testament. Mm. In other words, those who embrace this view would have to concede that the New Testament ethic is not the final ethic. Mm-hmm. That there is something farther down. In other words, I've heard them say, if Paul had only lived into the second or third century, right. he wouldn't have said the things he did in First Timothy or mm-hmm. First Corinthians 11. And I think that's really bad and really dangerous. The New Testament is our ultimate ethic. It is the ultimate and final standard. Now, granted, we still have to interpret challenging texts, and we have to do what you just brought up a moment ago. We have to discern what are the ground and the reason for the commands that are given? Mm-hmm. But we don't look beyond the New Testament and say, well, it, it, you know, if, if these biblical authors had only lived in the 5th century or the 15th or the 21st, they wouldn't have said what they did. Um, now, there is a trajectory in the sense that uh, the new creation, the new heavens, new earth, mm-hmm. circumstances there are going to be uniquely different from how they are now. But we need to be careful that we don't in my opinion, marginalize and diminish the final authority of the New Covenant Scriptures by appealing to this notion of, well, everything's on a trajectory from an ancient, primitive, oppressive um, mindset to a more liberated, free, open, and affirming mindset. To whatever degree there is truth in that, Mm -hmm. 
as long as it's within the canon. I guess right. what I'm saying, it has yeah, to yeah, be, yeah. this trajectory is intercanonical and it stops with the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. That's our final ethic and we have to be careful that we don't project into the future. Well, I don't like these New Testament commands in, in Paul's letters. Uh, I don't like these restrictions or these principles. And I think really, if we look closely, Paul was just a man of his time and we need to realize we're people of our time and this is where Paul would have gone had he lived long enough. Right. That's dangerous. Yes. That yeah. undermines the authority of Scripture. Yeah, I, I, I agree with all of that. I think, it's, I think it's a helpful way to think about it as well. Another um, thing that mm-hmm. will help people a lot, um, that's, it's not that this isn't important in interpreting other genres of biblical literature, but it is especially essential in the epistles is what we call historical cultural analysis. Mm-hmm. That sounds big and fancy, but what it means is this. You have to ask the question, who's the author? Right. Um, what do we know about his background? Um, the fact that Paul was a Pharisee is ma- massively in, uh, uh, helps us understand what he writes as over against somebody like Luke, mm-hmm. who was a physician. Right. Um, where was the author when he wrote the text? Um, think about you know John writing from Patmos in exile or Paul writing uh, 2 Timothy from a Roman prison where he's only probably days away from being beheaded. That shapes how you read his statements. Mm -hmm. You feel the urgency of his statements when you know he realized he's he's getting ready to have his head chopped off. Um, When did they write the text? Um, Who are the recipients? Who, Who are the people to whom they are being addressed? Uh, are are they are they writing to a Jewish audience? So, for example, uh, when you read Hebrews, mm-hmm. we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Um, I my old mentor in, in the faith many years ago used to say that Hebrews was written by Hebrew to Hebrews, telling them to stop being Hebrews. <laughs> that's good, but uh, that's a little over the top. But um, is it a? If you don't understand that that the author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish believers who mm-hmm. were contemplating reverting back to the old covenant, you're going to miss the whole point of the book. Yeah. Uh, is it a Gentile audience? Is it a mixed audience? Mm-hmm. Um, is he writing to people that he's assuming are truly saved? Right. Or is or is some portion of a text written for unsaved people with a view to bringing them to faith in Jesus? Is he writing to a mature church, right? You know, letter to the, to the Philippians, mm-hmm. very mature congregation, as over against writing to the Corinthians, who yes. were very immature. Um, was he writing to people who were uh, exiles? For example, First Peter, he's writing to those who were scattered abroad. Or James. Or James. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do the people live? Um, what is their political situation? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are they living under oppression? Are they living in more free and open society? What is the what's the what's the economic condition of the people? Are they rich or poor? Yeah, yep. things like that. Those are all just a, a number of factors. Yeah. Um, and 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 to 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 like point people to resources. I mean, you can at the front end of of pretty much every single commentary on a book of the Bible is going to open with this section on provenance. You know, like where is it written yeah. and and what was the audience and so let's let's put in a plug right here. Yep. Um, it's amazing to me how many Christians don't avail themselves of the incredible resources. Oh my goodness. We are rich with resources. And I'm going to say people, you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew to learn the Bible. Um, the two resources I'll mention are the ESV study Bible and the NIV study Bible. Yep. And they have slightly different points of emphasis. Um, 
Each of them has an introduction to each book that covers the kind of things we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. It'll talk about the nature of the literature and the circumstances of the author, the, the, the people to whom they were writing. Um, the, 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 the notes at the bottom of the page will bring to light some of the unique customs. Um, you know, think, for example, when I preach through Colossians, it makes a lot of difference when you read Colossians 1, 16, and 17 to know the, the geographical realities of the Lycus Valley. So, for example, Paul writes um, that in Christ all things hold together. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, th- that he, he is the one who, who is kind of the, uh, the, uh, the glue, if I can use that in a, in a reverent way, <laughs> that, that keeps everything cohesive. And he's writing that to a people and again, this is disputed whether the earthquake had already happened or was about to happen mm-hmm. to a people who were about to experience one of the most devastating earthquakes in the first century. Colossae as a city was almost entirely destroyed. Right. How are those people going to reckon with this disruption in nature? Is it going to be, oh my gosh, where was God? Didn't he know this was going to happen? Listen, in Christ, everything holds together. He mm. is in control even of the shaking of the earth beneath your feet. Yeah. Well, knowing that about Colossae and the Lycus Valley will, um, you know, there are things in, for example, in the seven letters in Revelation. Yeah, the, the hot or cold, oh, lukewarm yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that don't make much sense unless you understand uh, kind of the economies of the day and the political circumstances of the day. Definitely. Well, um, as we wrap up, I want to I wanna touch on one last thing. Um, which will hopefully just be an observation, uh, but maybe you'll have something to say about it. It's something that uh, I, maybe it's just more personal for me because it's been a path I've been on um, where I remember kind of going through three stages of reading the epistles. The first was theological wonderment, and I loved that stage. It was really early on in my Christian life, uh, you know, like ninth grade, and I was just I would I would like write out all the logical points that the therefores were building upon in Romans or Hebrews, and I would trace the argument of Ephesians, and it was just it was beautiful, and I loved that. And then I went into this season of uh, in kind of my college years of seeing seeing them as very didactic mm-hmm. and as 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 very like rigid do's and do nots. Yeah. Um, and then I felt like I was kind of liberated from that view uh, into in whenever I started to see. Uh, and you kind of traced it when you when you talked about Ephesians that pretty much every do or do not is seated upon the gospel yeah, in absolutely. the epistles, and we can see these humongous, gorgeous views of the gospels, vistas of the gospel of Jesus that then ground these very pointed, sharp, and um, authoritative ethical claims um, on our lives. So maybe just talk about the interplay between you know, ethical commands and the grounding of the gospel, because that's been definitely a narrative journey for me that's been big. Yeah, um, well, one thought that I, as you were saying, that I just turned over to First Thessalonians 4, mm. um, where Paul starts, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And then he goes on, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication, mm-hmm. from sexual immorality. And that he goes on and talks about um, um, God has not called us to impurity, but, but to holiness. Um, and it, it, so here's a real clear don't. Mm. <laughs> don't commit sexual immorality. Right. And you say that into a world today that is immersed in free sex, 
and hooking up uh, with whomever, wherever, whenever. Mm -hmm. And they would think, I don't want your oppressive, ancient, first century ethic imposed on me. And they don't realize that the instructions, the commands are God's way of saying, look, I love you so much that I have outlined a pathway of life that if you will follow it and if you will trust me and you will draw upon the power of my spirit to, to, do, to do what I've told you to do, you will experience deeper satisfaction and joy. You will come to understand who you are. You will have a greater sense of purpose and meaning in life than you'll ever find by living in violation of these mm-hmm. principles. So we, as much as, you know, use the word didactic, you know, this idea that it's teaching, it's do this, don't do that. But when you, like you said, when you understand how this is all designed by God for our good, mm. for our flourishing, um, you know, we talk about human flourishing, uh, and, and you know, here's the most controversial one we're facing today: homosexuality. Mm-hmm. And I just read, I, I just read today about the dispute going on in the United Methodist Church, and uh, the pastor of the largest United Methodist Church in America, up in Kansas, in the state of Kansas right down the street from where my daughter lives, said, well, we're going to lose about six or 7,000 churches if we don't, you know, make the right decision here. And then in the course of this, he said, we just, he said, we need to, to embrace the view that, that shows the greatest love for people. Hmm. And so I, I know what people are here. Yeah, how can you people who, who say homosexual practice is a sin, how unloving? Well, no, it's just the opposite. What is love? Love is is telling somebody that a particular belief or behavior that they have embraced is putting their soul in eternal jeopardy. I don't love somebody by allowing them to continue to walk in a way that is going to threaten their eternal destiny. Now, a lot of the people who would take the other side say, well, that's because you believe in heaven and hell. We're all going to heaven. It doesn't really matter. Well, if you take the Bible seriously, you have to ask those questions. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I, I've never, I understand your journey, and I think maybe it's more your generation, David, that mm-hmm. has gone through that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I never had a time in my life where I felt uh, that the New Testament letters, Paul's, Peter's, John's, whoever, were restrictive uh, or oppressive. Yeah. I've always found them heartwarming, liberating, because I understood the intent of my heavenly father behind every command. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I think for me, you know, it wasn't even like the, I didn't agree with the, like the didactic intent of a passage, like that it was, you know, you know, like your your body's a temple. So don't commit any kind of sexual abominations, you know, and that was taught all the time when I was growing up in, you know, middle school, high school. It was like, you know, worth the weight campaigns and all this stuff. And what I never heard was, the good news of the gospel and right. how that like changes me to love Jesus so much that I don't love the ideas of sex like I used to. Like there's something better to say yes to. Um, and I also just didn't understand. No one talked about like what it meant that I was the temple of God. They sure. never rooted this um, this clause in an epistle to the grand history 
that it, it was pointing to, that there was this tabernacle in the wilderness. And, it, you know, like they never walked me through the what it that, meant. The fact that the God of the universe now lives yeah, in you. Yeah, they never walked me through. It was just like a don't do it. Yeah. And so the, the epistles became very oppressive, you know, to me. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't until I came to Bridgeway where, you know, you pastor here now. And and uh, JJ, a former uh, pastor here, he, he, he gave me a challenge. And uh, he said, uh, I just want to challenge you to read Paul graciously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I just did not have a good relationship with the Apostle Paul. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, and I did that and I was like, this guy loves people. Yeah. And like he like you know and he understood the gospel and it changed my the way I read my, my epistles in a big way. Very good. Yeah. It's a good place to end. Hopefully. All right. Well man, this has been such a great series. Uh, everyone listening, I would I would highly encourage you, if you have missed any episode of the How to Read the Bible series, uh, go back and, and listen to the ones that you missed. It's been a, a great journey. Hopefully it'll be really beneficial to you as you read your Bible. But Sam, thanks for walking through us with oh, this. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I love doing it. It's been great. All right, guys. Well, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Bridgeway Podcast, where you will find a new conversation every Thursday. For more information about Bridgeway Church, we invite you to visit bridgewaychurch.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BridgewayOKC, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash bridgewaychurchOKC. If you have any questions that you would like us to address on the podcast, feel free to email us at podcast at bridgewaychurch.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on the podcast app as it helps other people like you find our program. So on behalf of all the pastors and staff here at Bridgeway Church, I'm David Bowden saying thanks for listening and we will see you next week.